Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. If you will, turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 at verse 9. We're actually going to back up and start reading at verse 3 just to get a sense of the text. The Pew Bible, page 983. We're in this uh, relatively new series on the book of Colossians, a wonderful epistle of the Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 1. And our focus is on verses 9 through 14, but I'm beginning our reading at verse 3. Here, the Word of God. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, may You bring Your Word to us by Your Spirit. Thank You for the fact that You enlighten our eyes and of our minds and our hearts Thank you for your precious word, and may you speak to us through it anew this evening. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Let's begin to see this evening by thinking a moment about the church at Colossae. We are beginning the study of this book, and it's good just to know a little bit of the background of what's happening and where we are in terms of the New Testament and the book of Acts. Colossae is, was located in the southwestern region of what at that time was called Asia Minor, and we call Turkey, the nation of Turkey. And it was located in the Lycus Valley of that part of Asia Minor, and it was close to the um, other towns or cities of Laodicea, which is familiar from the book of Re- Revelation, and Hierapolis. Those towns were on a trade route through the area. And at the time of this letter, uh, by this time in history, Colossae had become more of a backwater town and had been surpassed 
economically by Laodicea and Hierapolis. But um, it was a town nevertheless, and the gospel had come to this city, this town. Now, the approximate date of this letter when Paul wrote it uh, was about 60 A.D., and um, could have been a year or two after that. Paul is most likely in prison in Rome. There are other theories about where he might be, but it's probably reflective of the time at the end of the book of Acts. The book of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul under house arrest in Rome and still able to minister in that house, people coming to visit him there and so forth, but he's under house arrest. A very different situation, by the way, than later on uh, when he is writing letters like Second Timothy, and he's probably in the dreaded Mamertine prison in Rome, which is uh, a dungeon uh, at that point. So, Paul is in prison, most likely in Rome, and the church at Colossae had come into existence about five to seven years before the letter was written. So, in about A.D. 53 to 55, the church in Colossae had come into being, and it's evident from verse 7 that I've just read where it says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So, the church there, the gospel had come to that town through Epaphras, and it's likely that Epaphras had been converted at Ephesus. In that same time period of five to seven years before, Paul had spent two years teaching and preaching in Ephesus. It's likely that Epaphras had come to Christ in Ephesus, a hundred miles away, so pretty far away, in ancient time especially, and had brought the gospel back to his home town, his home area. And so, uh, now we find out from reading more later on, we'll find out that Epaphras is visiting Paul in prison, most likely in Rome. And so, Paul refers to him a number of times here. And Paul is writing to the Colossians, to the Colossian church, to build up this fledgling church in Christ. And we should note, and we'll see as we go along in the study of this book, that the centrality of Jesus Christ and the fullness and the deity of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ are a major theme of this letter. And we see that, we see as we go along the centrality of Jesus Christ in every believer's life, in his being saved in the first place and in his or her being sanctified and growing in Christ, a very important theme. And Paul's requests in this portion that we've read in verses 9 through 14 anticipate many of the themes that we'll study in the book that Paul teaches about. So, it's interesting, before he teaches about various things, he prays for those same things for them. And that shows that both of those things are important to be praying certain themes in your life and in others' lives, and also instructing and teaching and mentoring and helping others to understand the truth of God. And also a feature of the nature of the struggles that this young church 
we glean from the, the letter as we go along that there are some problems with false teaching that has come up in the church, which isn't surprising. Many of the New Testament letters deal with this. And one of the temptations, one of the issues that has come up apparently is this temptation to relapse to some degree into their previously pagan ways, especially concerning immorality. And so there's going to be exhortations about uh, immorality and to not sink back into that. You just think of the power of the pagan culture they were in. Here's this young, probably relatively little church in this pagan town, and they were called to live differently than the world. And so we see there's nothing new under the sun, right? The culture that we might live in now might be anti-Christian or very contrary to living a life pleasing to God and walking with Christ. But they were facing it in their day, probably in ways that were more difficult even than we in the West experience it. But not only was there this temptation to relapse to some degree into ways of sin, but there was the danger of seeking a false solution to temptation. In other words, false teaching about how Christian growth takes place. And we're going to see that spelled out in depth as well as Paul refutes that and shows the right way we're to look at that. And even the way he prays begins to teach about that. And we're not sure exactly what all of this involved, but we have clear hints about what some of this teaching was about. It was a blend of various things that were wrong, some coming from maybe a legalistic Jewish tradition of keeping certain legalistic, unbiblical, or non-biblical rules and regulations, some of it coming from Greek philosophy and Greek religions uh, that involved ecstatic experiences and ascetic legalistic practices. Again, a mixture of these wrong ideas, but essentially all of this unbiblical ideas about how to grow in Jesus Christ. And so, He prays about these things, and he's going to teach about them as well. And to counteract these false teachings, we're going to find that Paul again and again points them to Jesus Christ and his centrality in the believer's life. The false teachers may say things like, uh, you need another source of fullness in your life in addition to Christ, and, and this fullness may come through some kind of secret knowledge that we have or this higher knowledge that was similar to kind of Greek thought. And Paul stands against that and affirms the truth that all fullness dwells in Jesus Christ, and we have fullness in Him. Or the false teachers will say that you need to follow their special rules and regulations to truly be holy. You have to do these things. But Paul declares that Jesus Christ is sufficient both to save us and to sanctify us more and more as we grow in Him. So you're going to see those themes come out, but Paul, again, is praying along those lines. Let's look then at the four prayer petitions. We can break this prayer into four main petitions that he prays for them and see how those same prayer themes uh, apply to our lives and how we can be praying for those themes in our own lives and in others' lives as well. So the first one is this in verse 9. Pray for an increasing knowledge of Scripture along with application to your life. 
Pray for an increasing knowledge of Scripture along with application to your life. Now, it doesn't mention Scripture in this verse, but clearly it's implied. Look at verse 9. And so, Paul says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Doesn't it remind you of our morning sermon series on the book of Proverbs and wisdom from the Word of God? And so, Paul says, from the day that we got news that you had come to Christ… Paul saying, I didn't have anything to do with it. You know, uh, Epaphras brought the gospel to you, and we're, we have heard that you've come to trust in Jesus Christ. So this is really the overarching request, and from this request flow the other requests. Um, and this spiritual wisdom and understanding is, is really not exclusively guidance for life decisions in kind of the big sense, like you know, we all know what it feels like when we're praying for someone for guidance about what job they should take or what college they should go to or whom they should marry or, you know, big life decisions like that that we really feel a need for guidance. This is much broader than that and much more a part of our everyday lives. It's got a wider sense to it. Uh, it, and it doesn't really have to do with knowing the secret will of God, the providential will of God, and, you know, what His plans are for our lives as if we could know those in advance, but it's knowing the revealed will of God revealed in His Word. And so it's really wisdom for life, knowledge of the Word of God for life, the application of Scripture to all of life. For each one of us, there are thousands and thousands of points of intersection with our lives that Scripture speaks to. The way we think, the way we speak, what we do, uh, how we react to others in our lives, how we love others, how we forgive others, all of our various relationships, our jobs, how we work unto the Lord, our priorities, how we use money, our habits, our interests, our joys, our, our desires, how we face temptation, all of life. Scripture speaks to all of this. So this is a very comprehensive prayer request, and you see already how Paul is going to be teaching against what these false teachers are saying. They say, you need the secret knowledge from us. And Paul says, no, I want you to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding from the Word of God. How does that come to us? Well, it comes to us in a few different ways that we get this spiritual wisdom into our lives. And for the first thousand-plus years of the Christian church, the main way that Christians got the spiritual wisdom was the regular hearing and preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And still, that is, we could say, the main way that most people get the Word of God in a consistent way in the community of the church, that, that the preachers preach the Word of God. And we think about the re one of the reasons that was primary for 1,500 years or so is because uh, pretty much it was the only way for hundreds of years because uh, the Scripture had to be copied by hand, and it was very expensive to buy a copy of it uh, in the ancient New Testament period, um, it would have been very expensive to buy a scroll 
with writing on it or a codex, as they were called, a, a rudimentary book made by hand and, you know, sewn together and handwritten and so forth. So most people couldn't afford those. And the church would have those, and the pastor would read the Word of God. And, and so the people would hear it read and hear it taught and seek to take it to heart, and much of it trying to learn it by heart when they heard it read. Uh, and that relates to a second way that we get the Word of God into our minds and this spiritual wisdom, and that is what Scripture would call meditation. You think of Psalm 1. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law He meditates day and night. And the word in the Hebrew has the connotation of you're mumbling about it. You're going around mumbling the Word of God to yourself. You're thinking about it so much. In other words, not just learning Scripture verses by heart, but actually thinking about their application to turn it over in your mind. Uh, Maybe you've read the Bible in the morning or you've heard a sermon preached and you go into the week thinking, Lord, and praying, apply this to my life. How does this apply? Let Let me take it in and apply it to my life that I would have wisdom. You might say, well, in some ways, meditation is greatly enhanced. We've got Bibles on our phones, and we've got lots of Bibles in our houses, and we've got podcasts and sermons we can listen to anytime. Uh, I would say working against that, we've got 10,000 distractions, too, on phones and other kinds of podcasts and everything. So who knows, you know, if we have it better or worse than they did in the ancient world in some ways. But if you could use that in a good way. And so we don't just take the Bible and uh, learn it in terms of knowledge for knowledge's sake, but we take it and meditate on it, and the final application of meditation is worship and prayer and praise and a life in which Scripture has seeped into every corner of our being and the way we live. And we'll find out at the final petition is thanksgiving. We're giving thanks and praise to God. And then a third way we might add, I'm not going to spend any time, is uh, more of a modern innovation of Bible study groups. And uh, because we have Bibles available, we can sit and talk about it. I'm not saying they didn't do that in the ancient church, but that's a wonderful way that we have to do that now to maybe ask more questions and things like that or introduce others to the Bible who never studied it before. But the overall point of these various ways is our goal is to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And it's interesting in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul will put it in the form of exhortation. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So there's, there's the command. We're looking at the prayer here. And the question for us is, what is my mind filled with? What is your mind filled with all the time? Are you praying and seeking to have spiritual wisdom in your mind. Yes, we all have to think about many things. If you're a student in school, you've got to do your homework and think about math and study history and all these things. But we must recognize that it's always a spiritual battle to seek to have our minds filled with scriptural wisdom. You can know the Bible really well 
And you can still be lax about trying to daily turn your mind to the wisdom of God. And often that's a verse or a passage that you've read that you're praying about and just asking the Lord to help you to thank Him for some aspect of that, to praise Him, to apply it to your life, to heed the commandment that might be there, whatever it is, to be applying the Word of God to your life. I think about the first church I pastored that had a a youth quiz bowl team. And it was interesting that those teenagers, you know, in the quiz that was going to be in this six-month period, and they'd quiz, they'd have quiz bowls against another church, you know, and the churches would compete in the quiz bowl. And so if the quiz bowl subject matter was the book of Romans, you try to memorize all you can, like the verses, and know the themes, and know just different you know, data about Romans so that when the question was asked, you could say, you know, Romans 4.25, you know, it's pretty good. And, uh, you know, that's, it was a good way. I don't know if churches have quiz, quiz bowl teams anymore, but it was a good way to get the Bible into your heart. You know, but the same teenagers who might know the quiz bowl answers to Romans for that week might be in school, and they're not thinking about Romans at all in terms of their lives. You know, that was for the quiz bowl you know, but applying Romans to your life, that's spiritual wisdom. Do you see what I'm saying? And we can all fall into that. We can have a lot of knowledge, but are we growing in wisdom, which involves heart and life change? And that brings us to the second prayer request in verse 10. Pray for growth in walking worthy of the Lord. And you hear this theme of Paul calling Christians to walk worthy of the Lord in Colossians in Ephesians 4, in Philippians, in 1 Thessalonians, you find it repeated again and again, and every time there's a slightly different emphasis. But notice it in verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's quite a verse, isn't it? Uh, the verse 10 is introduced with a word that means so that like with the result that. So we're filled with spiritual wisdom so that something along the lines with the goal of, with the goal of walking worthy of the Lord. In other words, the goal of this spiritual wisdom is that we live in a way that more and more conforms our lives to the image of Jesus Christ, that we walk worthy of the Lord. And these three phrases in verse 10 further express and fill out this goal, fully pleasing to Him, number one, bearing fruit in every good works, and three, increasing in the knowledge of God. Think for a moment about each of those, bearing, uh, fully pleasing to Him. And notice, isn't it interesting that Paul writes fully pleasing to Him? And not just pleasing to him, although he could have written that. He puts fully pleasing to him. Doesn't that make us all kind of feel, huh, I know my life is not fully pleasing to him. I'd love it to be fully pleasing to him. But part of the reason he puts it that way is that is to be the goal. We aren't to have the attitude, oh, it's okay. I've got a 10% pleasing rate to, to the Lord. I've got a D minus, but I'm still, it's a pass-fail, I hope, you know. And again, we're not called to strive for this 
to merit salvation, to save ourselves. No, we're called to strive to be fully pleasing, to walk worthy of the Lord because He has saved us, we'll see. He's going to describe that at the end. He's going to describe the great deliverance we've experienced. And so, it makes it clear, this makes it clear we're to strive to please God in our daily walk, not merely out of duty, although it is a duty, but also we would say out of delight in God out of His grace to us because we are loved by Jesus Christ and loved by the Father and saved from our sins. What more could we do than to walk worthy of the Lord because He's at work in our lives? because we are adopted sons and daughters of God, and now we have been given the family likeness, so to speak. We've been given a new heart of love to God and love to others, and so we willingly desire to live that out in our lives. And we know as earthly parents, um, as earthly parents are, are pleased by a child's actions and attempted efforts to please the parent, that even when those efforts are very weak and stumbling and the drawing maybe they drew for their mom for Mother's Day is, uh, you you don't even know what it really is, still there's praise and thanks because it pleases the parent and the Holy Spirit we know is building us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ as we strive after Him. And then it says, bearing fruit in every good work. And that, you know, every good work encompasses our character as well as our actions, all the efforts that we do to love others and to live for Christ. And it brings to mind the idea of Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul writes... And it's interesting when you think of that that bearing fruit and you think of the fruit of the Spirit, it brings to mind the fact that this fruit that we bear is both imparted by the Holy Spirit as He works in our lives, and it's commanded by God. Do you ever notice that all nine of the fruit of the Spirit are also commanded by God elsewhere? So they're given by God's grace, by the Spirit as He works in our lives, but we're also commanded to do them. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Oh, love others and love God. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Be self-controlled. They're all like that. Go check it out. And that's not a comprehensive list. There are others as well. And so, Bearing fruit in every good work is also something we're to strive to carry out in the power of the Spirit, and we're to pray for this. I think of J.I. Packer, the British pastor and theologian who recently went to glory. When he talks about and writes about his young Christian experience as a 20-year-old young man in college, and how he was so confused by what was loosely called the Keswick theology of the day. Uh, And that Keswick theology, um, which, you know, had many positive Bible-believing elements to it, but there was one part of it 
that Packer stumbled over, and it was the idea that all you need to do in your Christian life is fully surrender to Jesus Christ. If you fully surrender to Him, then you kind of arrive at a higher plane of sanctification and you overcome sin in your life. And sometimes the phrase was used, just let go and let God, as if you don't have to strive for it. And Packer was deeply confused, almost to the point of despair. And what saved him was stumbling upon the writings of the Puritans. And he began to read John Owen and other Puritans about sanctification. And he says the Puritans saved his life because they explained sanctification in a way that made sense to him. And it didn't involve this super-duper, once-and-for-all surrender that makes you up into a higher level of Christian. It involved a daily putting-to-death sin and putting on Christ-likeness by the power of the Spirit with the centrality of Jesus Christ. And again and again in his writings, Packer always went to the trouble to write a paragraph or two. If, you, if you're familiar with his writings, he was always going back and mentioning the Keswick error as he saw it and describing why it was wrong and how to cor- correct it. And so when we think about Paul writing to the Colossians and he's going to be correcting errors, it's interesting that, we, that uh, both themes of Scripture are true, both the Holy Spirit imparted graces He gives us and the commands to strive to carry them out in our lives. We bear fruit by the Spirit's power, keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ and praying for His power. But also, we seek by the Spirit's power to put to death sin and put on Christ-likeness. Um, and much of this is by a life of prayer and meditation on the Word of God, that overarching theme, point number one, prayer request number one, Lord, let Your Word have its impact in my life. And then the final phrase of verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice that. It's part of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's not just how we live, but it's our life before God. And all this growing in Christ is connected to knowing God and walking with Jesus Christ in fellowship with Him every day. Do you see how this phrase so beautifully elevates our daily lives? Whatever your life is going to be like this week, uh, maybe it's a lot like last week, Whatever your life is going to be like, it elevates everyday life. No matter what is going on in your life, every day gives us an opportunity to increase in knowing God through Jesus Christ, to increase in looking to Him and living for Him, no matter how ordinary your life is right now, no matter how difficult your life is right now, uh, no matter the pain, no matter the brokenness, no matter the disappointment, no matter the loss. Jesus Christ meets us where we are every day, and He gives us Himself in our need, and He calls us to trust Him and to walk with Him, and by His grace, we grow in knowing Him. What a beautiful description that is, increasing in the knowledge of God. What a glory. The Creator of the universe who spoke the universe into being, the Lord of all, dwells with His people 
And what a reason then to walk worthy of the Lord. There is nothing better in all of life than increasing in the knowledge of God. What a prayer request. And then we come to the third major theme for prayer in verse 11. Pray for spiritual strength to endure and be patient with joy. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Wow, Paul added those last two words, with joy. Isn't this request one of the most common and the most constant ones that we are aware of, both for ourselves and for others? Uh, For God to renew us with spiritual endurance and strength and patience with joy, uh, it uh, brings to mind to me the weekly prayer sheet that we pray for, for members of our church. Um, All those various uh, kinds of ways that people need endurance and strength and trust in the Lord and patience for waiting on the Lord, especially in times of suffering. But isn't our fundamental request that God will give us his mighty resurrection power of the Spirit for whatever the day calls for. In Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 3, he's also praying the same kind of prayer, and he he talks about God's mighty power, and he says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that we would know that power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. What power? And Scripture says... That same power is ours for all endurance and patience with joy. With joy, even in deep hardship and sorrow. I'm reminded of what someone told me a few years ago when they went to hear Johnny Erickson Tata speak locally here. And uh, she's in her 70s now and was paralyzed from the neck down at age 17. Most of you know the story in a diving accident And this friend recounted to me what Johnny had talked about in her testimony that she gave uh, when she was locally here and about her common experience waking up in the morning. And apparently, her husband has already gone to work, and she has a system of friends who come and wake her up and get her out of bed and go through all the things she has to go through that she can't you know, move herself, so she has to have help. And the fact that when she typically wakes up by hearing the friend, whichever friend it is, in the room outside of her bedroom, this person told me that Johnny shared she has to pray that the Lord would give her a smile for her friend. Because left to herself, facing the dawning nature of just another day on this earth, paralyzed from the neck down, she feels despairing and not able to smile. And Johnny said at that time that most of the days the Lord gives her a smile for the friend who comes into her room. Something, isn't it, to think of how overwhelming life can be for all of us. But to be strengthened with all power by the Holy Spirit for endurance and patience with joy is to be one of our prayer requests for people around us and for ourselves. 
And the final request is in verses 12 and 13, a more lengthy request. And this is pray for a heart of thankfulness rooted in the gospel. Pray for a heart of thankfulness rooted in the gospel. And as we go through this book, we'll see thankfulness brought out a number of times. But look at verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. There's the prayer request. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Most of those two verses are declaration of who we have in Christ, who we are, what we have in Christ. And yes, there are many things to be thankful for in this life, but we're rooted in the gospel in our thanksgiving in the sense that uh, we might have many things to give thanks for, but the gospel is the rock-solid foundation of all that we have to be thankful for. And here Paul, Paul takes a bird's-eye view, as it were, uh, of what God has done for us in Christ from beginning to end. That's verse 13. He's delivered us. And the end, at the end of verse 12, to share in the inheritance of the saints' is life. He takes this bird's-eye view of the Christian life and experience, and he says, what an amazing thing we have to be thankful for. This description of what it means to be delivered, to be saved by the work of Christ. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. In ancient times, a conquering king often would move a people group from their native land to a different nation. He did that with uh, the northern ten tribes of Israel, and he moved into their area people that were eventually called Samaritans because they were not pure Jewish and so forth, and they brought their pagan practices with them. And, and we all know that uh, Judah and Benjamin were transferred to Babylon in exile. In exile. And the conqueror would do that often to resist, to reduce any political resistance. And here we see that our great Redeemer has conquered sin and death and hell, and He has taken us, and He's transferred us in a much better way, not to a nation where we're enslaved and in captivity, but He's transferred us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son, Jesus Christ. What an image that is, that we've been transferred into this new domain. We are citizens of heaven, Paul writes elsewhere. That's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. It's a glorious thing. And the idea is here that whatever happens in this sad world, and even as I say that, I think of Heidelberg Catechism question number one, what is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And we've often repeated this, and maybe you know it by heart, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been transferred. He has fully paid for all my sins by His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. We've been transferred into the domain of the beloved Son. What a cause to live with thanksgiving. And then there's the, really the end of the Christian life. Paul looks at at the end of verse 12, that he's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The idea I have is this kingdom of light, 
this kingdom of glory that Revelation portrays, that the New Testament looks forward to with such joy. And we have received the down payment of that inheritance in the presence of the blessed Holy Spirit in our lives. In fact, Paul calls the Holy Spirit, the, he uses the Greek, modern Greek word, it would be for the engagement ring. He's given us the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit the down payment of that full glory to come, fellowship without sin with our Savior and Lord, with the people of God forever in the presence of God. These are the petitions Paul prays for the Colossians. And they leave us with just two points of application. One, have you been delivered and brought into this kingdom of light, the kingdom of the beloved Son? And we know that it's through faith in the gospel just like Epaphras brought the gospel to the Colossians and they believed the good news of Jesus Christ and they gave him their lives and repented of their sins. And then secondly, how do you need to be praying these petitions this week? There's a lot to think of here. Maybe one of them struck you particularly. How do you need to be praying for family members or friends or people in the church or co-workers or people in your school? How do you need to be praying that God would fill us or fill them with a knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Amen. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you for the practicalness of your word, that this is where we live every day, needing your wisdom. There's never a time in our lives that we don't need wisdom from you through your word. We thank you that you graciously hear these prayers, Lord, that these are according to your will. And even though, as we might wish, you don't sanctify us fully in this life, that that awaits glory, Lord. Thank you that we can grow in the knowledge of you, that we can grow in pleasing you and bearing fruit in every good work. May you do that for us, Lord, and in us this week we ask that you might receive all glory and that the name of Jesus Christ might be lifted up. Pray in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.